Hello, everyone. Nice to be here again on stage and in this lovely event and in this uh, lovely atmosphere with all these colleagues from the industry. And I'm really excited to sit here on this stage uh, with all the other panelists. I think it's a really uh, good set of people that we have here for a couple of very interesting discussions, especially considering all the input that we heard now for the last one and a half days kind of from the governments, the regions, the regulators, and yesterday also from the money perspective. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this panel because now we have the industry here on this panel. And I'm really looking forward to see how the industry responds to all what we heard from the governments, from the regions, and especially from the business money perspective. Um, let's start quickly with a quick round of introductions. So, um, as I said, I'm Richard. I'm the director of the business unit at Mozilla Consulting. Um, I mean, you all know Lorenzo, but let me quickly say a couple of words to what the company is actually doing. Um, so, I'm in the role as the the, the director of the business unit, my main responsibility is to kind of transfer Lorenzo's visions uh, into the actual real work and daily operations. Um, how we, do we do this? We do this kind of with the different steps that you see behind me. Um, coming in from the regulatory perspective over providing then the strategic approaches with all these different steps that we also heard already from the readiness of the technology, just to mention that pace, that there are a lot of gaps still existing up to getting into these operations that are scaled and then to the UTM, how to, to do this. So this is kind of uh, to summarize what we do and what we can help with. And now I would hand it over to maybe Clem, you as the first one. Thanks very much. Uh, Clem Newton-Brown from Skyports with a Z. We're no relation to Skyports UK. Uh, uh, primarily focused on Australia. Um, my background is not aviation. It's um, in uh, politics, uh, town planning and tourism. Uh, and what we're focused on, I suppose, is uh, doing our small piece of the puzzle, which is the, the landing sites to enable these amazing aircraft to, um, uh, to operate. Uh, so the, 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 the things we're looking at is um, bureaucratic, political, community support uh, for changing regulations uh, to enable new vertiports to, uh, to, to break that nexus between aviation and airports. Um, and then the next thing we're doing is uh, gathering um, options on sites. So we've got over 500 sites um, in Australia now. Uh, and then we're working with some amazing designers to develop um, uh, designs from uh, right from small little verta stops right up to mini airports um, for the so that property partners can activate with those designs. Thank you very much. So, Juliana. Okay, so good morning. My name is Juliana. I work at EVE Air Mobility and at EVE I'm responsible for the business development. So everything related to sales, marketing, government relations in Europe. Uh, so I'm the whole, uh, I'm representing EVE in Europe. So EVE is the first spin-off from Embraer. So here you can have some information about the vehicle that we have been developing for uh, the last four or five years. Uh, this vehicle will have an entry to service in 2026. We have customers all over the world in the six continents. So we have today more than 30 customers. And it's a very diversified, uh, let's say, um, customers. Uh, we have airlines just like United, Skywest, Republic. We have helicopter operators just like Halo or Bristol or Helisum in Brazil. A few uh, ride-sharing platforms just like Blades. 
Um, so you can see that we have a diverse uh, backlog. And also these customers have been working with us on the development of this vehicle. That's a vehicle for four passengers, one pilot in the future. I don't know when, uh, well, I think that nobody here knows when uh, we are looking for autonomous operation. So uh, that's it. I'm looking forward for the discussion today. Thank you very much. And um, we're also, I think, all really looking for your, for your input from the user's perspective, especially on the Wertiport side of things. So, Brad, over to you. Thank you very much. So, Brad Miller, Managing Director for Frovial Vertiports for Europe. Um, thank you very much, Esther, for the kind invitation. Um, wonderful um, venue uh, and conference. Um, I'm, uh, a bit like Clem, I'm looking for sites primarily. Uh, so, from a European perspective, We've also got a big team in the United States. And Frovial Vertiports, just to put it in context, is part of Frovial Airports. We are invested in places like Heathrow, Aberdeen, Glasgow, Southampton, a new Terminal 1 at New York. Plus, there's a really big toll road division called Sintra, um, construction and energy. So in, in total, Frovial is about 20,000 employees worldwide. Um, and it's my absolute privilege to be able to pull on all parts of the business to try and help piece together what is needed from a, a UAM perspective. Thank you very much. So, and then last but not least, Christoph, with you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, coming from 20,000 people uh, to 20, uh, based in uh, Constance, at the beautiful Lake of Constance, just two hours away. Um, so what we do is, uh, we basically, in terms of Vertiport, we are more or less the one-stop shop for all weather-related questions. Uh, we have two topics we're working at at the moment. One is supporting the site selection, which is very important also from a weather perspective. So where can you place the Vertiport? How does weather impact the planned operations? How many approach departure paths do you need? and all these kind of questions we tackle with a data-driven uh, approach that is not focusing only on weather but always having the operational constraints in mind. And the second part is uh, we have a platform for drone and eVTOL operations which we are now uh, adapting to Vertiport weather management where we combine uh, hardware from leading uh, sensor providers in the aviation industry with our forecasting and uh, automated weather evaluation. Uh, capabilities and that's basically what we do and uh, looking forward to the panel thanks perfect thank you very much I think we've as I said I think we have a good group of panelists here so uh, maybe Brett let's uh, start with you with the first question um, we heard now uh, yesterday that there is on the one hand a lot of activities out there a lot of movement a lot of willingness to support and to progress in the industry uh, and to connect also cities with, and we heard about mobility is more than just uh, urban air mobility, it's urban mobility kind of thing. We heard these statements. Um, but on the other hand, we had this uh, nice little uh, poll from Vasilis that he was showing up yesterday that things may not be there or not moving at all. Um, so from this perspective, what do you see? What is kind of the blocker to proceed here? And I mean, for sure, with especially with the infrastructure to really establish the infrastructure that we need here. Uh, first thing to say is thanks. Uh, what a great question. Um, <laughs> obviously, look, I, I look at it from, a, from an infrastructure perspective. That is, that is my, my, my viewpoint. Um, we're across everything else. Um, at Froviel, we are looking primarily at passenger services. We will look to incorporate cargo on evitols or to accommodate that plus drone services if it fit, fits within the, the troughs the operational troughs of the passenger service 
So I look at it from that perspective, just to give it a little bit of context. I think, like everybody else, we have to acknowledge that the EVA tolls are the thing that's still on the critical path. Uh, and then the other aspects are obviously um, airspace capacity, uh, who's actually going to operate and sell seats um, on the EVA tolls. It's absolutely wonderful to see operators and airlines now starting to take a bigger step into the industry. I think that's really important, um, not just from a, an operational perspective and safety perspective, but also commercially in terms of yield management uh, of seats and the, 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 the management of the battery life as well and how they're going to incorporate that into their W patterns across the, the operational day. Uh, and then not least, um, from an infrastructure-specific sp perspective, when I talk to local governments and local, local authority colleagues, it's really interesting to hear their take on things. Um, and one of their absolute concerns, once they get past the safety aspect, and it's wonderful to be able to point to people like EASA, and the member states, uh, the FAA and the CAA in the UK to say that they're drawing down on existing regulation to, to help um, bring UAM into being. That, that Those brands, if you like, um, are very recognisable to even laypersons from an aviation perspective, so that helps overcome the safety aspect. But one of their biggest concerns after that is, is this going to be for the exclusive use of the top 0.1% or the top 1% of earners in, um, in countries? or in society, uh, and from our perspective, we, we have to say no, because we're looking at it from an infrastructure perspective. Um, and that means volume going through the facilities in order to justify our investment. I acknowledge, like any new product, it probably is gonna be more expensive um, than we would like it to be at the beginning, um, but it's how quickly can we get to economies of scale and to help drive that down. So after all of the regulation and all of those other things and EVTOL's coming into being, it really is, it's those intangible aspects of how do we start to get planning permits uh, and integration into society. Yeah, thank you very much for, for this insight and I want to, to stick with one thing that you said, which is kind of, is it just, because I think it's an assumption that many people have, maybe not necessarily in this industry, but people outside of this industry say, okay, these EV tolls and air taxis, they are nice, but they will just serve for the, the upper half percent of the people, or the, the first percent maybe. So maybe, Juliana, to you as the, the manufacturer and the, the uh, operator then maybe as well, what, what is your take on this? How would, I think you have an interest as well that it's more than just one percent, right, that is using your product. So how do we get there? Yeah, this is a tough question, <laughs> but um, let's, yeah, so it's all about cost, this industry, right? So we had a, a, a very good panel yesterday related to um, cash and financing and, uh, um, and we need volume, uh, but you're not going to have know, hundreds of EVTOLs flying over London or Paris on day one. So we needed to think about a phased approach and to have different stakeholders here and we needed to start to talk now and share the risks. So I don't think that uh, the Vertport guys, they're gonna take the, uh, all the risks and share, I don't know, $5, five pounds uh, per land or per, per passenger. Um, the fleet operator is not going to take all the risks and charge only, I don't know, $10, 10 pounds uh, per passenger. David Tom manufacturer, we cannot charge just a small amount uh, per EVTOL. We have the leasing companies that can also be a good partner here. So we needed to everybody work together and look to each one of the lines of costs, so the operational costs, and see um, how we can uh, tackle these risks together. 
in the beginning, the day one, uh, it's not going to be cheap. So we cannot say that this is going to be comparable to an Uber X. Uh, I think that, uh, and, and this is the message that we need to be very careful when we are talking to uh, the community with the, the passengers. But I think that's how we show the plan and how we see the growth of uh, this industry. Uh, another thing is that I don't think that we are going to replace uh, trains or that we are going to replace buses. So, um, but it's uh, when we are discussing with cities, when you are discussing with our uh, fleet operators, our partners, we think about um, something that's going to complement the current means of uh, tr uh, transportation. Um, and when we are talking to cities and when we are talking with the third part companies, we talk about land and power. So this is what uh, we need. Uh, if we are not fully verticalized, so we are not investing in the infrastructure, we are not, in, uh, we are not going to have our own EOC. So we are building, certifying and also supporting this uh, fleet of EVTOLs. Um, and the need to work with each one of uh, these partners. So it's about communication, about a long-term view, and um, and each market will be different from uh, from from the other. So the operations that we are now uh, studying and the, the routes that we are looking in San Francisco, for example, they are completely different from the routes that we are working with our partner in Ninja in Bangalore that are completely different from the user cases in Sao Paulo, that are completely dif different from the user cases in Norway. So it's a case-by-case -case scenario, and, uh, and it takes a lot of work, and that's why we needed to start working together now. Perfect. I, I have a couple of follow-up questions for, for the group on this, because there were many, many good things in there that are quite interesting. Maybe the first one, you mentioned these different routes that we have to set up and to select and then to scale all of these routes, which perfectly makes sense from my perspective. Um, then my question is, okay, I, how do I know that this is kind of the, the route that I want to take and this is the uh, takeoff and landing area? I mean, speaking from a VertiPort perspective, this is a static point, right? Um, so how do I select this? And maybe, Christoph, starting with you, and then afterwards, I'm also curious to hear Clem's perspective on this. Uh, what, what do you think about how can we select the, the good starting points in this that are allowing us as the industry to scale them from there? Yeah, so basically we're involved in some of these processes or projects at the moment and it's a multi-dimensional construct. So we are always bringing in the operational part, the weather part, but of course you need to match the demand side as well. And um, you also need to think not about is it a place where people want to move from A to B, but also how is it connected to other means of transport? Because if you, you use an eVTOL to save time, if you arrive somewhere and then you don't have a good follow-up connection, uh, you don't save a lot of time. So I think this multi-dimensional um, aspect is quite important. And uh, you mentioned uh, uh, San Francisco, and uh, that's quite interesting. We also did a, a study there. And if you look at the Bay Area, and whoever of you was, there, you know, it's horribly congested in terms of the roads are full, in particular if you go in the morning or in the evening hours. And um, if you now it's completely clear there's a lot of people earning a lot of money, they would be interested in having eVTOL services. And if you look at the morning hours, that's exactly the time where you have fog. Uh, so, how does demand meet with the operational conditions? Uh, so, it's a very interesting topic to deep dive, and all these aspects have to be considered together. And so, we're not experts in demand modeling, but all Always we have contact to Vertiport projects, we get involved with these people, also with the airspace integration. And I think that's quite interesting seeing these different competencies and uh, 
yeah, it's not easy uh, because you cannot just select any point in a city. So it also has to be available. And I think that's where Brad and Clem uh, have some opinions. Uh, you cannot just choose, oh, this is a nice building. And there's a lot of uh, other topics involved as well. Yeah, perfectly makes sense. And I mean, you've already passed the wall somehow to you. So curious to hear your view on this. Yeah, if I, I could um, just echo those comments, it's, it, it's perhaps um, the question's put in the cart before the horse to some extent because uh, at the moment you can't just choose a site and say this would be a good spot for a vertiport based on all our demand modelling because uh, there is no, um, uh, you know, criteria or uh, uh, regulatory framework for vertiports. It doesn't exist anywhere in the world and this is a great opportunity for uh, city shapers, decision makers, bureaucrats to actually come up with a, a new land use category called a vertiport which is easier to get approval for than a heliport which everybody hates. Helicopters are noisy, loud for rich people uh, and they're in very limited locations where you allow a heliport. So this whole industry actually depends on this, the missing link to this industry is breaking the nexus between aviation and airports um, and you need to do that by by saying a vertiport is different to a helipad or, or, or an airport and that comes with bureaucratic support from people like all the people in this audience today the city shapers uh, and the community and um, so in that context this conference is amazing I mean the the, the, the focus uh, on this aspect of um, city planning uh, is hugely important. And while it's, this is a small conference, I think it's probably the most important conference I've been to, and I've been to lots of conferences. Uh, we do a lot of, t we, we go to, well, we go, it's true, and we, and we, we go to a lot of um, conferences and we see the shiny new aircraft, and isn't it amazing? And yeah, they are amazing. But the reality is, if you guys and girls uh, don't um, break that nexus between aviation and airports, this, this industry is never going to fly. Uh, all we'll get is a sexy helicopter, flying as helicopters fly at the moment, maybe quieter, greener, uh, probably not any cheaper, uh, going from helipad to airport. So the revolution only comes when we get approvals for new vertiports in new locations. And, um, and that's, the, that's the really, really difficult thing for, um, uh, for us to achieve because it needs political support. Um, I'm an ex-politician and it frustrates the hell out of me because I can see this as you know, the first city or country that, that breaks this nexus and says, come to Switzerland because, you know, we've got this new category for vertiports. Put them in industrial areas uh, to begin with and then the community will push to have them uh, in, you know, more commercial areas. And the first country or city that does that will see that investment flow and um, it doesn't actually cost the politicians anything because industry will pay for it. Um, so, as I said, look, I spent a lot of my time trying to convince cities in Australia and around the world to do this and um, nowhere have there been a rule sort of set in place. So, uh, it's great to see everybody, everybody here today because I think, you know, this is, this is actually where um, uh, the industry will actually sh uh, be able to develop as everybody's uh, predicting and, 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 uh, and putting out there that it will. It won't happen unless we get these new vertiports. Just to tell one little story, um, uh, uh, the Segway. Uh, I'm concerned that this whole industry will be like the Segway. The Segway is a similarly shiny new object, um, doing an absolutely amazing things. You can stand on it and you know, think about going that way and it goes that way. Um, you know, incredible piece of technology. Uh, and you know, Steve Jobs said this is going to be bigger than the PC in 2010, I think it was. Now that, that that uh, piece of technology still exists. It operates only for tourism now and some, I think, security purposes uh, in shopping centres and things like that. And the reason that 
hasn't worked is they're too expensive. I think they're about $10,000 each. And, um, and you couldn't use them anywhere. You couldn't use them on footpaths, couldn't use them on, uh, on roads. Uh, and look at scooters, electric scooters. They've exploded around the world because they're cheap and they you can use them you know, in lots and lots of locations. So um, this is my concern about this industry. Is these aircraft are clearly coming and they'll clearly start flying as helicopters do, but unless we break that nexus between aviation and airports, it's, we're never going to have the revolution. Yeah, thank, thank you. Um, there are a few points, especially on the business side, that I would like to come back later. Um, maybe now first that I now get a better understanding of kind of the infrastructure that we need and how, where and how to place these kind of vertiports. Um, Brett, what is the kind of infrastructure that is really needed to set up a vertiport? Because, I mean, uh, Clem was kind of doing this reference that, that we hear often, okay, what's now the difference between a vertiport and the heliport in the end? Um, so I guess it's kind of an infrastructural thing that is the difference, but what is kind of the infrastructure that is needed there? Before I answer that question directly, and I will come on to it, it you might have to remind me, just, uh, just talking about the commercial aspects and just building on this, uh, we're, we're really firm from our perspective, demand, 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 where do you decide? where to put a vertiport, I think Justin was saying it, in terms of uh, use cases and what, what the customer looking for. Demand, demand, demand. If you, if you remember nothing else of what I'll say today, please try and remember, demand, demand, demand. It's where we start and finish with absolutely everything. Christoph's absolutely right. We need to think about weather. We need to think about energization of the site, integration of airspace, the, the actual, the, um, the size, the shape of the, the footprint that's available to us, the commercial aspects of that. But the, all of these things take time and money and due diligence um, to work out whether they're right or not. It's our firm belief that if there's not a the demand there, don't waste your time even bother looking at any one of those aspects. So we look, first of all, where the demand is. We then go through all of that due diligence and then we come back to the demand before we, we're then prepared to put a spade in the ground and to actually start building the infrastructure. So I, I did want to underline that point. I think it's hugely important, not just from an infrastructure perspective, but for our OEM partners to make sure that their operators and their airlines that are acquiring the aircraft, however they are, that they've got the confidence that the volume of passengers is going to be there so they can operate profitably because that is the thing that allows everybody to continue to invest and most, in, most importantly, to continue to operate safely and securely. So in terms of the actual infrastructure, look, they're not that difficult. They're, they're, a, they're a drop of PQ uh, to form the airfield and then some small passenger services. Really, the complicated bit is integrating them into urban environments and making sure that they are proximate to the demand. Thank you very much. And I will come back again on this on this business side, as I said. Just quickly, I would like to hear your view on what uh, Brett just said on the on the infrastructure that is needed. How do you see this as a as a manufacturer? Would you agree with this that it's super simple, or do you are there some kind of hidden hidden blockers that that may appear? I agree about the demand part, uh, but I think that we need to approach um, on different types of vert ports and to have different sizes of vert ports. And do you need to have a kind of a really big vert port uh, that would accommodate, I don't know, 10 EVTOLs for the overnight maintenance, uh, for the overnight charging? And uh, this is not easy to find this huge space uh, just in the middle of the city. So, and we need to take into account the range of the vehicle. I think that someone just mentioned this in one of the panels yesterday. Um, so this is very important. So we needed to think about, okay, where these vehicles are going to, uh, to pass through the night for the simple maintenance and also for uh, battery, uh, long battery charging. 
And uh, this is something that we needed to, to discuss in a case-by-case -case scenario where we are going to place uh, these vehicles. It could be close to uh, an existing MRO facility. So we've as being part of Embraer, so we have uh, MRO uh, facilities in different parts of the world. So we have uh, different partners all over the world. So we know how difficult um, it is to maintain uh, a huge fleet. But the case here is that's completely different from commercial aviation. So based on the range of the vehicles, we have here in our case a vehicle with a maximum range of 100 kilometers. So if we have a maintenance facility in, in Portugal and we have a deal with Air France in Paris, so it will be a really bit difficult to fly. Uh, this if it's all from Paris to uh, Lisbon for some uh, check C or check D. So we needed to have something close to their uh, main uh, operation. So it would be much more fragmented. So I don't see, for example, in our case, if Embraer just doing all the MROs all over the world, so we'll be working with partners. Uh, but we needed to work with these guys here. So okay, if this is something that they would be interested in, uh, in investing, or if this would be something together with the MROs. So it's a case-by-case -case scenario. So I agree uh, totally with him that's about the, the demand. So you need to place these uh, vertports where the demand is close to, to the demand, but you need also to think about the maintenance uh, parts in the evening. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I, I agree. I'm curious to see how, the, especially this maintenance part, will work out, considering that many of these EV tolls are not long-range EV tolls. They're rather short-range, and this from my perspective, somehow would mean that we have to set up a, uh, a kind of very complex maintenance infrastructure again there. So I see, I see kind of the point. So, but it's a good thing to to think about. Um, I hear all your your points on demands. Um, so let's uh, stick a minute on this and spend a bit more time in evaluating what what this means. What is the demand? So, in the end, I think the question is how to make things really reliable and profitable in the end, right? So, Christoph, maybe w how would you approach kind of th this demand thing? How do we determine where the demand really is? Um, I mean, you are doing a lot of data assessment, if I got it right, a lot of analytics. Do you have the insights and where the, the real demand will be? Uh, so I can only share from the projects we are involved in, and uh, I think... Um, it's one uh, one aspect we have to look at is is it really in Europe uh, at the moment uh, or is it in some other uh, cities countries uh, outside Europe where you have either um, already today uh, these air services established or you have just much bigger cities with less public transport uh, because we have a quite good transport uh, system in Europe in place and uh, so a vertiport and EV tolls need to compete with this existing means of transport and I think that's a challenge and of course there might be specific routes that could be interesting there's often discussed about these airport shuttles uh, what I believe is that it would be even more interesting uh, to look at these intra-city connections uh, because at least looking uh, to Germany we have within the cities quite good connections, but sometimes uh, you, it takes you five hours uh, to go uh, something uh, by public transport, which is done by car in two hours, uh, because it's just horrible on the uh, re more remote uh, landside areas. And uh, I think, um, therefore, we need more mature eVTOL. So uh, it's uh, eVTOL with a range of like 50, 60 kilometers might not serve that issue, but if we talk about 100, 200 uh, kilometers, that might be opening up new business cases. Um, but I, I can 
cannot tell you the exact uh, demand uh, options yet. I think demand is Brad's topic. Uh, we heard uh, demand, demand, demand. Uh, but I, I think it's important uh, not only looking at Europe, uh, but also uh, we see a lot of um, activities in Dubai going on at the moment because there's the people having the money, there's the interest using new technology, and uh, we see in Asia and in South America a lot of cities using um, a mobility already today and keen to replace that uh, with electric services. Cool. Thank you very much. And I mean, we have the slide with the with the questions already on there. So I invite all of you again to to pull the slide up. And if you need uh, the additional QR codes, they're all around here. So just just scan them if you like. Uh, before we get into this, kind of one one last question uh, here from one of the things that you said, just Christoph, about okay, the people have to go there. They don't want to spend a lot of time in really going to a vertiport. Um, if I imagine nowadays from the security pace, if I enter an airport, um, how this works, and I mean, uh, we have a I'm from Berlin, we have a very special relationship to our airport, um, but the security checks there can take such long, they very often can take longer than the actual, or they are taking longer than the actual trip. So maybe, Clem, to you. How can we reduce this and still uh, ensure that there is the, the security level that we are used to today? Yeah, sure. Before I answer that, if I could just quickly address the demand okay. side of things. I'm less concerned about the demand. I've got a, a nuanced approach to demand. I think that the um, airports were built where they are in cities because they're you know, reasonably close, flat land, and uh, you know, they're not built because people want to go there. It's, it's built up and they will come. And I think for the back of house, larger vertiports where we will have you know, aircraft serviced and everything else, and uh, uh, I think those can be probably built in places to where you don't have a demand and potentially you will create a demand out of park and ride uh, services. Where I agree the demand is super important is the, is the smaller vertistops. And these could be places where it's just a single pad, uh, cheap, to, cheap to build, you've got approval to, to drop off and, and not even in charge, just drop off, take, off, take away again. And those are the sites where I think you know, demand is super important, but you also need to have somewhere close by to, to go and park your aircraft because they can't hang in the sky waiting for the next lift. Um, so on the issue of security, I've got a bit of a controversial view on this. Um, I think we have to be careful what we wish for with security because uh, it is a huge, potentially huge impediment in cost and time. And we all sort of think, you know, and I've said at all these conferences, we're all talking about, you know, similar sort of security to airports. But look at helicopters and small charter planes now. Most small regional airports don't have any security. You get on an aircraft and, um, uh, and there is no security. Uh, and so I suppose we need to look at, well, do we actually want to introduce this security or do we want this to be more like getting an Uber or a bus and, and, and that it's a, a, a common form of transport which is quick, not a lot of waiting around, you, you get on there. And people will say, well, what about security? What about terrorism? And, um, and that's when we come down to actually thinking about why, was, why do we have this, this sort of mindset about aviation needing this super level of security. We come back to 9-11, obviously the catastrophic um, uh, you know, results of a terrorist getting on board a big aircraft. But these are not big aircraft. And if, if you were you know, minded to um, you know, be a, a, a terrorist who wanted to create damage, you could probably create more damage by hijacking a semi-trailer and driving it through a shopping mall. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a hard thing to get your mind around, but I think we do have to be careful about um, uh, over, 
uh, being overly cautious with this type of transport just because it is aviation and also pointing to the fact that we don't have this type of you know, high-level security with smaller charter operators now. So I see you want you want to command on this here. <laughs> yes, yes, please, yes, please, yes, please. Uh, a, a relief for the audience. I'm not going to mention demand in in terms of security. Um, so I, I think it's b before I do add to what Clemens said. Um, safety and security, absolutely number one priority. It's the thing that allows us the seat at the table and uh, our reason to to operate. I think if you look at uh, Vertiport or UAM operations through the security lens, through the aviation security lens that we have today. The regulators, particularly EASA and from the UK from a DFT perspective, they've done the work already. Uh, their, their risk assessments are there, that the, 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 the measures are commensurate to the risk that they see. Uh, and so EC300 and slightly different in the UK, apologies, we do have to be uh, different. Um, if a vehicle is less than 10,000 kilograms, in maximum takeoff weight and less than a certain amount of seats. And invariably, these are going to be flying domestic, so we don't have to worry about um, the border. Um, then the DFT very, very recently at a round table um, in London confirmed that subject to ministerial co um, confirmation and sign-off, aviation-style security will not be needed if you are traveling and paying for a seat and you're flying to and from a licensed vertiport. And that's how the, re that, that's how the regulations Clem's uh, referenced helicopters and GA. That's how the regulations are written today. So it's not doing something different for um, these, these EVA tolls. It's actually following what we have in place already. And so I'm really grateful to all of our regulator colleagues and peers for adopting the special conditions and giving themselves permission to take decades um, worth of experience and data and operational knowledge that are baked into the regulations today and giving themselves per permission to use those as the foundation and then bridge to what we need in the future. And we just, I, I see that the part, that sensible path with regards to security is being followed, which is absolutely fantastic because you're right, if we have aviation style security uh, at every vertical, it is gonna erode the benefit of getting on an EBITAR in the first place. Just to my final point on this, when we talk to the, the large commercial airports, we strongly advocate that their vertical operation is placed landside outside of the critical part for a whole host of reasons, not least because it means that I don't have to have security at every vertical across the entire network that may or may not serve that uh, vertical at that airport. All right. Thank you very much for the additional statement. Let's go to the uh, to the pool of questions, and let's start with the first one from Andrew. Um, maybe to you, Clem. Uh, speaking again about the demand capacity. So, what's your level of concern that there are no testbed vertiport networks available to mature the vertiport tech stack? Well, look again. I've probably got a bit of a controversial answer here. Um, uh, some of my um, colleagues and competitors uh, are very focused on. Uh, having test beds and, and vertiport um, uh, you know, prototypes, um, which I think is you know, is good. It increases the learning if you if you're actually you know, working with with a you know an OEM to to work out how, how you interoperate. But I'm not that fussed about for, as a vertiport operator. Um, I'm not that fussed about what goes into the vertiport yet because the aircraft don't even exist yet in a commercial sense. So, you know, while we've got some information, we don't know exactly what every aircraft's going to require. Um, and to, to waste money trying to develop a fully functioning vertiport now 
just so you can say you've got a test bed, I don't think is necessarily the best use of our time and money for a vertiport company. I think the most important thing that I can do is to get those sites, get options on sites. And that's what our focus is, getting those options so that when new people decide we're going to allow vertiports, allow you to break that nexus between aviation and airports, and here are the rules, um, I can then go back to you know, all the property partners who have signed up to give me that option and say, well, your site's suitable, uh, let's, let's do, a, do a deal. And once you've got that deal, you've got the, the real estate, the physical real estate, what actually goes into the real estate, whether it's you know, weather systems or you know, air traffic management, uh, whatever security is required, uh, construction, battery charging, all that sort of stuff, this is all still in development. And, uh, and I think you know, the most important thing we can do is get that real estate and then be available. And, and I'm sure it's, we can be quite nimble at the time. So in two years' time, if I'm building a vertiport, by then I'm talking to you know, the, the, all the experts in all those areas that you need to consider for a vertiport and getting the most up-to-date information as to what needs to go there. So I'm not that fussed about um, a test bed. Um, I mean, it's great. Countries like you know, in the Middle East, where the, you know, in uh, you know, Neom and uh, and Dubai, where they've got you know large large pools of money to be first and to create these test beds, I think that's great. They will learn a lot. We'll all, all learn a lot from that. But in terms of taking investor money, um, I don't see that there's going to be a return for investor money in building uh, test beds right now. Yeah. Thank you. I, you said one one very interesting thing, and I think it uh, also uh, somehow resonates with one of the other questions that we had. You said these aircrafts are not there, and I mean you're right. Um, uh, so what we have today are more the, the the smaller ones, right? So we have the drone sector with all the delivery drones, etc. Um, and we have here the the question from Torsten that seems to go kind of in a similar direction. So maybe uh, for you, Christoph. Uh, there's much discussion around passenger transportation. Uh, could you expand on the potential role of smaller cargo drones in the context of a vertiport? Uh, happy to answer that in a second, but uh, I first want to get back to the previous question with uh, one one sentence. So, I think test beds at one point uh, are important when we talk about future more automated operations of eVTOL, because there we need a different tech stack. If you look at how will the initial operations be like, we have VFR operations, we have rules on that uh, being worked out, we have clarity how a vertiport looks like uh, if you accommodate that. And speaking for the weather topic, it's not tech. It's a windsocket, what the regulatory asks you for at the moment. So it's not high-tech uh, digitalization, whatever. But still we see that this is not how the industry will evolve and we need to mature, we need to think about how can we integrate sensor data, how can we communicate uh, information to pilots, maybe being in a remote center, they don't see uh, the uh, windsocket anymore. So I think this is important to tackle, but this will not impact the initial operations which, which will take place under VFR rules and which will be maybe in 2000. 24, 25-ish, uh, starting somewhere here in Europe, in Dubai, wherever. And so that's my point on the test beds. I think we need them, but for another kind of operations than what the initial ones will be. Um, and thinking about the second question, so the cargo drones, 
if I look at uh, how they're used at the moment, uh, I don't see them flying that much uh, in the city center uh, or in the urban areas. I see them more flying in the remote areas, connecting islands, doing hard to reach places, or what we see in Ireland with this more suburban areas, but then usually they drop off uh, packages in the garden. And I think it's still the question, what is the viable business case if we talk about cargo delivery? And I think it's, uh, yeah, you always need to compare it with the available means of transport. And if it's uh, in the city center, there's a lot of good competition that have optimized the services for hundreds of years. And uh, then you don't need a vertiport if you connect a, uh, let's say, island or ship to shore or whatever. So I think they're not always related in that sense. Yeah, point, point taken. Although I think uh, Justin may, may have another opinion as weird uh, with these hundreds of routes in place that are all touching urban environments. So I think there might be uh, some, some controversy about this as well. Then maybe just a follow-up question on, on this one, maybe for you then, Juliana. Um, I agree with that uh, maybe the, the role of a, of a complex vertiport or a vertiport at all for cargo drones might not be that relevant yet. But what we see is more and more drone in a box solutions that are kind of, you could consider them as kind of a, a, a mini vertiport. I mean, you don't need the, the huge infrastructure, but there are some commonalities that you have, especially thinking about the location. I mean, you want to choose the right place. How do you see this? Do you think they can help or it's a complete different story? Or can they help kind of getting the way towards the vertiport and scaling things up, starting with kind of these drone in a box. Okay, so I think that um, all the operations related to cargo drones, they can help the future uh, operations with EV tolls. Um, not really related to the vertiport locations and so, but I think that's about uh, community acceptance. So I think that's that already helps in showing, and uh, we really hope that we will have no incidents, accidents, because then it would be really uh, bad for the whole industry. Um, in terms of the location, um, the size of uh, uh, an all, and there are different designs, so varies a lot, but they are uh, more or less the size of a helicopter. So it's a big wingspan. So uh, the, the area that you need in order to uh, operate these EVTOLs, I believe that they are a little bit bigger than the area uh, that are needed for this drone in a box. Um, I think that these guys investing in infrastructure, if they look for the future, and it, if they're investing in some land and in some infrastructure there, it's not going for, the, I don't know, for 2026, 2024 only. They are looking for the long term. Um, so they are looking for 2030, 2040, how this is going to be. And uh, I believe in a kind of an integrated operation between EVTOLs, uh, cargo drones. Um, um, if we look at, for example, airport shuttle user cases, we needed to um, kind of link the operation of the EVTOLs with the wave of the operation with the, the airports. And in between, when these uh, airplanes are going to be charged for a long time, you can, be, uh, you can use the same space. Uh, for cargo delivery. So uh, I see as a kind of, a, okay, it's not exactly the same, uh, but in the future you could use the same infrastructure. All right, thank you. I see, Clem, you're, you're ready to speak and to comment on this. So, quick one. Yeah, uh, look, I, I see great potential in co-location of uh, heavy lifting drones with uh, a vertiport for passenger uh, services, primarily because I think 
when we first break that nexus between aviation and airports, it's going to be in places like industrial and commercial areas. Uh, that's where we put all your smelly, noxious, loud industry, which uh, you know, is, is, is not going to bother people if you put a vertiport there along with all that type of industry. And so if you do that, then you, and you're providing the transport services for cargo as well, it's actually a really useful service for uh, industry. So you can, for example, have heavy lifting drones going from you know, industrial park to industrial park moving goods. Um, and so I, I see uh, you know, they can, you know, in, in, in those initial stages, I think we will see you know, those industrial areas being both for passengers and for, um, and for cargo. And interestingly, the whole industry, I think, we, we've got sort of two sort of parallel similar industries, uh, uh, cargo drones and, and uh, EV tolls. And I think they will converge at some, at some point, and they'll converge where we've had enough heavy lifting cargo, cargo drones operating safely enough without a pilot, um, that, uh, and at the same time you've got the EV tolls operating with a pilot, uh, and when you get to the point where uh, the, uh, the cargo drones have proven themselves and they're, and they're big enough to be, they may even be the same, the same airframe as the EV toll passenger aircraft, and that's at the point where they come together and converge, and you take out the pilot, and uh, and then and then you've essentially the cargo are the humans. Thanks. Thank you for the add-on. Maybe let's move on with some more of the other questions. There's one question that I that I like because it's really going to to the straight to the point. Maybe, and I think it's also a tough one. But maybe Brett, I can I can choose this for you again. So the question is, what location is best positioned to host the first Verdi port for commercial operations and when do you think it will be operational? <laughs> uh, when it's going to be operational, I can't. I can't answer. Um, it's probably no surprise. The best location, the one with the highest demand. Love this answer. Very good. <laughs> Thank you very much for this. Maybe one one other point that was coming up. That's bit of uh, a separate topic on this. Uh, coming back to, to UTM and ATM and U-Space, we heard a couple of comments on all the other panels about it. And, uh, uh, Michael is asking for this here. So what's the opinion of the panel about? Uh, are birdie ports a part of U-Space environment or classical ATM? Anyone who wants to start with this? Uh, it's kind of the first one from Michael. So what is the opinion of the panel about are vertiports a part of use space environment or classical ATM? You? Go ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to start, certainly. Um, I, think a mixture, I think a mixture of both. It, it has to be because, you know, Clem's already referenced that uh, a vertiport is neither a, heli, a helipad or a heliport um, or an air, airport. We're starting to see uh, our regulatory colleagues expanding the definition of an aerodrome. And I, I think similarly, you know, it, the vertiport is going to straddle in the same way that it does the existing classifications of infrastructure. It borrows from both. The EVITOLs themselves borrow from both classes of rotor and fixed wing. Uh, I think we're going to see ourselves borrow from both classes of, of uh, airspace. So very polite answer to, to take both and all of them in the room. All right. I, yeah. So kind of the last comment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just uh, a comment about it. I totally agree with you. And uh, I think that we need to think about, okay, these VTOLs, they are going, uh, they, they'll have a pilot on board. Um, so uh, 
it's about uh, voice-based uh, communication, right? So it's just like a huge drone, but with a pilot on board that will be communicating uh, with the tower uh, by voice. So we are already discussing with uh, air navigation service providers, with local CAAs. Uh, we have a solution uh, at the SEA in Brazil that operates the huge um, urban airspace in Sao Paulo, and we have already a solution together with Embraer that we have deployed there for the last 20 years. Uh, that it's a real, uh, we call it urban ATM, so it's a mix between uh, UAS and, and ATM, because we needed to have this complication, right? So we have the pilot there, and they, uh, today in Sao Paulo, they communicate with the ATC at every seven minutes. So if you have a route that's, I don't know, it's uh, 50 minutes, two times the pilot needs to change the communication and then com um, communicate to the tower uh, they are in a, um, in a visual, um, let's say, uh, flight. So um, we need, and if we are looking for having hundreds or 50 VTOLs flying over the big cities, we needed to uh, kind of tackle this complicated thing about the communication. We needed to have a certain level of automation already with the, the pilot on board. So this is what we have discussed in red with the authorities. Thank you very much.